If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to chapter 16. And uh, just as you're turning there, let me just kind of paint a picture of where we've been. Back in chapter 14 is where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then later on in chapter 14 is where he promises the Holy Spirit. And it goes through and there's this focus on the Father and how Jesus has done exactly what the Father has sent him to do. And that he does what he sees the Father doing. Um, Everything he says is from what he hears the Father saying. And then in 15 he talks about this connection now that we have with him. He's the vine, we're the branch. And he paints this picture that as the branch we're connected to the vine and because of that there is this essence that flows through us that is what produces the good fruit and we also have this benefit of a vine dresser that is constantly watching the branches and making sure that they are being fruitful and if they need attending to then he attends to them he prunes them if necessary he waters them if nurtures them if necessary he shades them if necessary because his interest is in the production of that branch and anything that's not connected to the vine that's not producing fruit obviously that is an indication that whatever's in the vine is not coming into the branch and so those are breaking all broken off and and thrown away but the picture there remains that what is that essence that's flowing through the vine? And, and how does what's flowing through that vine make its way into the branch to produce fruit? Well, again, he's kind of bookended that idea of him being the vine and us being the branch with the promise of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does for us. And that's what we're flowing into with our passage now. So you see in verse uh, chapter 15, the beginning is, I am the vine and you are the branches. And it's the whole benefit that we have of being in Christ. But then there's the negative part of that, and that's where verse, uh, chapter 15 goes towards the end of it, which is the negativity. The world will hate you. And, and ultimately, there's this temptation that we have when the world hates us to hate in return. And that's where we don't have that option. And ultimately, the world will hate you, but you don't have the luxury of hating the world in return. You have to act differently. Why? Because you are filled with the Holy Spirit, And therefore, he leads you to glorify Christ. Christ glorifies the Father. How did they do that? Well, ultimately, Jesus, what we see is all those who are attacking him, he gave them opportunities to repent to the very end. All the way up until the week that he was going to be crucified, he offers the opportunity for the Pharisees and religious leaders to repent. And so he sets this standard. He even teaches his disciples, um, love your enemies. Uh, Those who curse you, hey, speak blessings to them. Do good things for those who do bad things towards you. That's the way you honor me. That's the way you honor the Father. So ultimately, that's what we see flowing into chapter 16. Now, last week, we looked at the first four verses, and I'm going to read those just for context and comment just very briefly. But we're focusing on the rest of this passage. Now, you're going to notice I'm going to skip over 8 through 11. That's because we're saving that for next week because it specifically tells us this benefit that we have with the Holy Spirit. So we wanted to kind of focus in on that by itself next week. So we're going to talk about what surrounds that passage, looking at 12 through 15 and roughly 4 through 7. Okay, so let's look at that, jumping in really with verse 1 to set the context. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Again, I think that's a beautiful reminder that God's word serves a purpose. And that purpose is to remind us of what's real and right and true. 
Whenever we look at the world and we see it falling apart and we see all these different images coming at us and all these things that are requiring or demanding our allegiance or demanding us to agree with them, then all of a sudden our heart starts getting torn in all these different ways. Maybe we experience anxiety. Maybe we experience depression. Well, we have to go back to what Jesus said because the whole point of what he told us, the whole point of God's word is so that we don't fall away, so that we are not tricked by the schemes of the world, so that we are not swayed by their arguments because they're false and they're empty. So we have to keep coming back to something that's solid and true and right and good, and that's what God's word is. And so whenever you walk through a difficult time, you need to make sure you're grounded in God's word. When the world starts falling apart around you, you need to make sure that you're grounded in God's word. When you see the divisiveness of culture that happens, you need to go back and make sure that you're grounded in God's word. You can't be grounded in Fox News or CNN News, or you can't be grounded in whatever your favorite online portal is to get news from. You have to be grounded in something that's never changing that the truth is always the same. And so it's so important for us to be grounded because the whole point of Jesus giving us the Holy Spirit, the whole point of us having the word is so we do not fall away. It reminds us that God is in control, that we are limited in what we can understand about ourselves and about the world around us and we are dependent on God's divine wisdom. James says, any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Lord. That is our source of wisdom. He continues in verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you. He says it again. That when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Now notice two times he talks about an hour. That's an important theme throughout the Gospel of John. Because Jesus is always referred to his hour. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then when he comes to the point of the Passion Week, when the cross is right before him, he says, my hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But notice there's an hour that's also assigned to the world. He says there in verse 2, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. He also, towards the end of that, talks about when their hour comes, you may remember that I told these things to you. I told you these things were going to happen. Jesus knew that circumstances are powerful. They are very powerful in the human psyche. In other words, when we find ourselves involved in the circumstances of our life, those circumstances are very powerful to dictate to us how we should react, how we should feel, how we should respond. It's amazing how powerful human belief is. It's amazing because we can convince ourselves of things that aren't even true. We do that all the time. I call it awfulizing situations, right? You see something and you're like, oh, this must be behind that. And if that's behind that, then that's got to be this. And if that happens, then we're going to lose all of this. And then before long, you've convinced yourself of chaos and world destruction when in reality, it starts with something that's very simple. But we awfulize those things because we believe these things are going to happen. We can convince our things, uh, ourselves of things that aren't even true. Uh, I told a story of uh, this man that I worked with. He was a children's minister at a church, and he was going through the children's area one night very late at midnight. He had to stop by there and pick up something from his office on his way home. And um, he was walking through the building. He thought he heard something in one of the rooms. And so he thought, that's weird because there shouldn't be anybody up here. And he looks in the dark room, and he's like, hello, is anybody here? And, And there was no response. And so as he goes to turn on the light, he sees something move in the background of the room, and it scares him. He's like, who is that? 
who is that? And now he's frantically looking for the light and he sees the person like moving across the room and he's getting real nervous and finally he flips the light on and it's just a mirror that's in the back of the room. It was his own reflection very dimly that he saw moving across there. And we, he convinced himself that somebody's there. He's convinced himself somebody's out to get him and it was just himself. See, human belief is powerful. That's why Jesus keeps directing us back to the scriptures because when we believe these things are true, it is powerful in the way that we see our our circumstances. This is so important. Jesus wants his disciples to know exactly what's coming, exactly what they're going to feel, and exactly what they're going to be tempted with. He wants them to know when these things happen, hey, I told you this was going to happen, and you can trust me, and if you can trust me that I knew these things were going to happen, you can also trust me with the truths that I'm telling you that are going to help you to overcome these things. There's a great illustration in this whole passage here with the Apostle Paul being a prime example of the kind of people that Jesus was talking about in verse 2. <clears throat> he says there were literally going to be these people who believe that they're doing a service to God when they kill you, when they persecute you. Well, Saul was like that. The apostle Paul, before we call him Paul, his name was also Saul, and that's what he was known as there. <clears throat> and Saul was the one who was persecuting the church. And Saul was the one who really believed that he was doing a service to God by chasing down these Christians because he believed that they were spreading this false religion and this false messiah and it wasn't until God grabbed Saul's life and shook him that he experienced this conversion Saul the persecutor was so powerful that one historian says that when Saul became a convert of Christianity that the church experienced a time of peace after that. Now think about how powerful that man's persecution was if they literally recorded that the church experienced a time of peace after he was converted. And not only that, here's what's amazing. Saul, the apostle Paul, was probably the one who oversaw Stephen's persecution and ultimate stoning when he died. Stephen said some very interesting things. Number one, he called what he saw for what he saw. He spoke the truth. He didn't pull anything back. He spoke of God's judgment and how the people had missed God coming in the person of Jesus Christ. But ultimately at the end, as they began to take his life from him brick by brick, stone by stone, throwing it at him, crushing his skull, he shouted out something that only he could have known through a story or maybe he was there at Jesus' crucifixion. But he said the same thing that Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now that's someone who is following a model and not responding to circumstances. That's someone who knows truth and living by that truth and not reacting to what's happening around him. And that's amazing because here's the thing, Stephen never saw an us and a them. He just saw truth and people who were living with truth and people who weren't, but here's the one thing that Stephen never gave up on, that the people who weren't with the truth right then might accept that truth later on. You see, if you ever give in to an us-them mentality, then what you do is you respond to hate with your own hate. Now, maybe it's not as prominent as what's happening in our culture, but yet it's still there. It's there with you when you're sitting there watching TV. It's there with you when you're reading your favorite blog. It's there with you when you're talking at work and things begin to make you angry. And very easily, you can create a us-them mentality. There is us and there is them. But here's the thing. If you ever do that, then you know what? You've given up on the grace of God. Because if Stephen had that perspective, then he would have never known that a person right there who was overseeing his death would become one of the most powerful figures of the church that would write literally the majority of the New Testament in the Apostle Paul. 
You see, the thing is, we have to understand that those who are against us today may be one of the strongest advocates that we have tomorrow. Why? Because you can't ever give up on the grace of God. You never know what God is doing and what he can do. And so all the hatred and the vitriol that we see in our culture today, you cannot let that affect you. You cannot let that stir you to hate because you never know. The loudest voice that's against you today may be the loudest voice that's for you tomorrow. And ultimately, you don't know who that is or if it'll happen. So you got to go back to what you know is right and real and true. And that is God's word. Now, look at this, this question here. I want you to talk about this in the families as you have lunch today or maybe later on this is a good question for the family to just kind of rally around and talk about why should we always keep an open mind towards those that may persecute us and even hate us and in that what you really want to focus in on is the model that Jesus set for us literally the teachings that he gave us and the way he lived his life and how do we apply that in the world that we live in, in the cultural context that we live in today how often are we tempted to think of a us and them mentality and to respond to hate with hate? We always have to make sure that we're giving God's grace a chance. Again, verse four, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Now there's two phrases in there that I think jump out at me. These things, what are these things? The persecution, uh, the hatred, the response, the, them coming at them. Um, these things are what you're going to experience. That's what he told them. But then he also has this phrase there, when their hour comes. And what is meant by hour? Well, I, again, I want to say there's this hour that Jesus was waiting for, for glorification. And again, remember, that was his death. And the hour of the world is also them implementing their perspective of death. But there's also this perspective, I think, of two different hours. And there is a heavenly hour and an earthly hour. And the earthly hour is really wrapped up in this world. And this world is the ultimate end. And therefore, we got to get what we can from this world. The divine hour is thinking about God and who God is. And so the divine hour will walk through persecution because we know there's something much larger on the other side. The earthly hour will not work, will walk through persecution. It will implement persecution to protect what we have right now, which if you think about it is only very shallow and brief and doesn't last forever. And so that's the reason Jesus keeps pointing us towards the divine and living for the heavenly hour versus living for the earthly hour. Because both of us will experience eternity, but which hour you live for in this life determines where that eternity is. And again, he keeps calling us back to don't, don't lay up your treasures here. Lay your treasures up in heaven. Don't live for this world. Live for the kingdom of God. Don't live the way the Gentiles live, lording it over others. Be a servant and serve the way that you've seen me serve you. That's a picture that's painted for us there. Look how it continues there. Verse five. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Well, 
when he says, I did not say these things to you from the very beginning because I was with you, I think what he's talking about there is the fact that if you watch Jesus walking through the Gospels, what the Gospels highlight is that Jesus always stepped out and took the brunt of the persecution that was intended for him and his group. You ever notice that? That he really shields his disciples from that throughout his three-year ministry. Well, now he knows that he's going away. He realizes they're going to experience the brunt of that, that he's been taking. So he's warning them, hey, what they've intended to, for me, they're gonna now give to you. When I'm out of the way, they're coming after you and you're going to experience those things. But then he says something very odd here. He says, none of you ask me, where are you going? Well, Jesus' disciples do not ask where Jesus is going, apparently, in this moment. And he, he highlights that. Now, if they knew the purpose of why he was leaving, if they understood the goal of his journey, then they would not have a troubled heart like the passage ends up telling us that they do. But right now, they're not thinking beyond their current circumstances. All they can see is that they thought this was going one way, and now all of a sudden it seems to be going another. They thought they had a king in Jesus, and now he says he's leaving. And so all of a sudden, their world is beginning to crumble. And he's reminding them, listen, you've got to begin to think beyond your circumstances. How about you? Are you able to think beyond where you are right now? what we're experiencing in our culture, what you're experiencing in your own life, maybe what you experience in, in your workplace or in your family. I don't know what your situation is, but are you able to think beyond where you are right now? Notice that Jesus says that they do not ask, where are you going? And it almost seems like a contradiction because at least twice in the Gospel of John, they asked that very specific question. Jesus, where are you going? And he says, you're not asking that. You're not asking this question. Now, does he mean that they've never asked this question or they're not asking it now? And ultimately, we don't know exactly what that answer is because there's no more details that are given to us. I believe that it is because they have quit asking, and I think it has to do also with the nature of asking. Uh, the nature of asking, let me explain that real quick. So if you have a child that you're playing with in the yard, right, and then you're like, hey, um, I, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna have to cut this short. They would be like, but dad, where are you going? Now their question is, they don't really care your destination. What they're asking you is, why would you be leaving? We're having so much fun, don't leave. The, the, the whole thing will fall apart if you leave. We're not gonna be having fun anymore. I have to go back inside and do whatever I was doing beforehand. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes when we ask, where are you going? We don't mean literal destination. We mean, why are you leaving me? And ultimately, I think the reason the disciples have asked this question before was from that perspective. Why are you leaving? Not where are you going? And Jesus is saying to them, you're not asking the right question. You should literally be asking me, where am I going? Because if you understand where I'm going, then you begin to understand the whole purpose of this ministry, of this life that I've lived, of this, this uh, time that we've had to interact and I've led you and taught you through these things, you understand that there's ultimately this destination that we're all going to, and then that destination is where I'm going to prepare a place for you. You would rejoice, not have a troubled heart, if you really knew where I was going and you cared about not just me leaving, but you cared about where I was going, because where I'm going, you will be also. He's already told them that. Even from their perspective, even with Jesus telling them all of these things, even him, with him laying this out there, we also know these disciples all missed it. 
We know that when it comes down to it, Jesus, exactly what he said happened. Peter denies, Thomas doubts, all of them run away. Look at verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Because I've said to you that I must leave, sorrow has filled your heart. That shouldn't be the case. Joy should fill your heart. Sorrow fills your heart. You're not connected. You're not listening. And the whole point is the reason they can't is because they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. Remember, the Holy Spirit doesn't come till Pentecost. So he's saying the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to remind you of these things and then they're going to make sense then. But right now, because I've said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Sometimes when we hear what God speaks to us, it creates sorrow in our hearts. But the beauty is for us to begin to look at the bigger picture. It's for us to find a context that's larger than what our simple minds want to focus in on. I did a study of pastors um, for one of my projects at school, and I studied 20 pastors who had been in church for 20 years or longer. The reason I did that is because if you know, there's an epidemic of burnout in ministry. Many ministers do not make it more than 10 years in ministry before they give up and go to another job. And even ministers that stay in ministry throughout their entire career most of them, the majority of them, only stay at a church anywhere from three to five years before they end up going to another church because they just get burned out and they just go to a new location. They get burned out and they just go to, go to a new one. So I wanted to study these pastors, figure out how in the world did they overcome this burnout? How did they overcome the difficulty of occupational stress? And here's what's amazing. I don't have time, obviously, to detail everything that I learned from that, but there's two things that I think are very applicable to you and I that I learned from them. And number one was this, every single one of them without fail, when I asked them, how do you see stress in ministry? How do you deal with it? Every single one of them said, the first thing I tell myself is, it's only gonna last a little while. It's only temporary. It's not always gonna be like this. And that's true because what you find from the burnout literature is that most pastors who leave, they convince themselves they're never gonna listen to me. They're never gonna change. They're never gonna follow my vision. So I'm wasting my time here, so they end up going somewhere else. But the other ones say, you know what? They may not write today, but five years from now they might. 10 years from now they might. And if I leave early, I might not ever see the fruit of the ministry that I've invested in here. And so they sold out to a long-term plan, not a short-term circumstance. The second thing that I learned from them is this. They saw circumstances, difficult circumstances specifically, as an opportunity. Whenever they saw something difficult, they said, well, God's trying to teach me something through this and I've got to figure out what it is that he's teaching me. And so I had to lean more heavily into God's word. I had to lean more heavily into my relationship with him. I had to lean more heavily into my quiet time because I had to make sure that I was hearing what God was trying to teach me through this. Whereas many people see difficult circumstances as something to avoid or to get over as fast as possible. Because here's the thing, you will see difficult circumstances in one of two ways. You will either see it as a slave driver or you will see it as a teacher. And depending on how you view it will be how you respond to it. Scripture over and over again says, view difficult circumstances as a teacher. God is trying to teach you something that there's no other way he can teach you but to allow you to walk through these difficult circumstances. This ultimately comes down to stress. And stress is looking at current situations and not looking beyond them. That's, that's how I define stress. That's my own definition. Stress happens when you look at your current situation and you never pick your head up and look beyond them. And then you get stressed out. Why? Because all you're seeing is what's wrong right around you. And that causes anxiety and that causes stress. 
people are attuned to looking at what's right in front of them instead of picking their head up and looking beyond where they are. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So what's the advantage for Jesus to leave? Is it that the Holy Spirit is more powerful than Jesus is? Uh, That's not the way to ask that question at all. I think what he's saying there is God sent the law and you didn't listen to it. God sent the prophets and you didn't listen to them. God sent his son and you didn't listen to him. Apparently we have a listening problem. And so Jesus says, it's advantageous for you that I leave because I'm gonna send my spirit. Ultimately, this is what Jesus was saying. Listen guys, I've walked with you for three years. I've shown you how to do this. I've taught you the word. I've told you exactly what it means and y'all don't get it. And I refuse to walk next to you anymore. I've got to leave so that I can walk inside of you. I've got to leave so that I can come and I can do this for you. I'm going to live inside of you and I'm going to empower you to live the life that you need to live. That's why it's advantageous for me to leave so that I don't walk beside you so that I can walk in you. And he does that by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. They're already overwhelmed. They are spiritually unprepared. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet. They would not understand anything else that Jesus would share with them. This is why the ministry of the Holy Spirit is so important for us to understand. It literally enlightens us to Jesus' words. It enlightens us to what it means for us and the benefit that we have in following God's plan for us. Look at verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but Whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The thing I want you to understand about this is that Jesus is the full expression of God. He is the total revelation of God. He is the word of God that has come to man. He is the truth. Truth is a person. He's already told them, I am the way, the truth, and the light. However, that doesn't mean that we can understand all of him. That doesn't even mean we can understand some of him. So the Holy Spirit comes to help us understand what's already been revealed through Jesus, what's already true through Jesus. You see, he's already revealed himself, but we can't understand it. But the Holy Spirit comes to us so that we can understand. So my point is this, the Holy Spirit doesn't, doesn't come to make new things true. He comes to reveal to you things that have already been revealed, we just didn't have the capacity to understand them. So the Holy Spirit comes and reveals truth to us that's always been true. It's not new truth, it's truth that's been there from the very beginning. We just didn't have the ability or the capacity to process that truth. These are not new revelations, it's just the glory of Christ further revealed. And as we walk with Jesus day in and day out, the beauty of what we have been called to walk in is to understand him more and more gloriously. It's a picture of the perfect divine community. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, the Spirit glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father. All of them live in this divine community. Now there's one God presented to us in three different perspectives, but I want you to see that within the unity of God, there is perfect community. They are each submissive one to the other. And that's exactly what he calls us to be in Christian community 
community to submit one to another. It's what he calls us to in Christian marriage, to submit one to another. That's what he calls us to in family, for us to submit one to another, because that's a picture of this divine community. Jesus himself is the truth. He says in 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the Spirit tells the disciples what is yet to come, and he helps them to understand two things. Number one, he helps them to understand the past, what Jesus has already said. When the Spirit comes, he'll remind you of these things and he'll enlighten you to these things. But he also warns them of what things are to come because Jesus spoke of when you see these things happening or when you see this happening in the culture, know these things. The Spirit leads us into all truth. What a beautiful, beautiful promise. It's important because this is the layers of the Holy Spirit's ministry to us. And again, we're gonna talk more about that looking at verses eight through 11. But let's finish off today looking at those last two verses. Verse 14, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, I want you to stop for a moment and I want you to really hear what those verses say. I want you to hear the beauty of that, the beautiful promise that's in verses 14 and 15. Listen, he will glorify me. Who is he? The Holy Spirit. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will take what belongs to Jesus and he will declare it to you. Verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Do you see the beauty of the Holy Spirit's ministry to you? He's literally taking what belongs to God through Jesus and making it available to you. The divine understanding of God made available to you as a human through the power of the Holy Spirit. What an incredible promise. Are we fully embracing that? The Father has shared everything with the Son. The Son has shared everything through the Spirit. My question to you is this. Are you taking full advantage of what's been afforded you? Are you taking full advantage of the perspective that the Holy Spirit can give to you about the circumstances that are going on in our country right now, that are going on in the world right now, that are going on in your family right now? You know, it's not just a fractured world, a fractured country. We have fractured families. We have fractured lives. And this is the healing balm for everything that ails us. To listen to the Holy Spirit, not CNN or not Fox News or not your favorite blog. To listen to the Holy Spirit and listen to him tell you, hey, all these things happening, I knew they were gonna happen. Keep your eyes on eternity. Keep your eyes on what's true. Keep your eyes on what's real. Remember what's effective. Don't return hate with hate. It's not what I showed you. It's not what I modeled. It's not what I told you to do. Keep going back to the word. Keep letting it pour over your soul. Keep letting it lift your head above your circumstances to embrace the truth that I'm trying to teach you through what you're walking through. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a powerful word that reminds us even in a day when we walk through fractured societies and fractured families in a fractured world, when the church as a whole faces persecution more today than it ever has in the history of the church throughout the world. Lord, we are reminded that there's one source of truth and that's your word. And we would never understand it without your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come, reveal, 
show us, open our minds and hearts to truth and let that truth revitalize us, revive us and renew us. God, thank you for loving us so much that everything you have, you've made affordable to us through the power of the Spirit. Jesus, thank you for making that possible through your death and resurrection. Lord, may we take full advantage of what you've given us an opportunity to access. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.